0: Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives again and was recorded in December of 2014. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Edward J. Dodson. Mr. Dodson attended Shippensburg University and Temple University, where he received his undergraduate degree in economics. Dodson worked for Fannie Mae, a private-public partnership, to help distribute home mortgage loans across the country. During his time at Fannie Mae, Mr. Dodson held numerous management and analyst positions within the Housing and Community Development Program, helping to grow neighborhoods and local communities across the country. He also has extensive experience as a history lecturer at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute and in the Learning is for Everyone program at the Burlington County College. Edward has written many papers on history and the political economy and is the author of a three-volume book series titled The Discovery of First Principles. We were lucky enough to talk with Mr. Dodson about land value taxation, how bad tax policy can incentivize risky speculation. And why the teachings of Henry George are rarely discussed in mainstream economics classes. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Ed,
1: welcome to Smart Talk. Well, thanks for joining us this morning, Ed. Uh, It's a special uh, special value having you here because you've lived uh, through the Georgist philosophy for many number of years. You've been at the headquarters city of Philadelphia. Uh, You teach cooperative individualism. You're an expert on the technology of Henry George. So why don't you just give the audience your view of how Henry George has affected you uh, through your lifetime.
2: Okay, Andy. Well, uh, discovering Henry George was really important to me from a professional standpoint, because back in the 1970s, I was becoming very interested in land use policy issues. And uh, I first encountered Henry George's ideas from a city planner in central Pennsylvania who uh, explained how land value taxation would impact sprawl and would facilitate community revitalization. And those were real important issues for me because I was working in uh, the real estate uh, sector at the time and so you know, I read Henry George. It really didn't sink in right away but some years later when I moved to Philadelphia and I was working uh, for a commercial bank in Philadelphia managing its mortgage department, I was more intimately involved in community revitalization efforts in Philadelphia. And I remembered Henry George's ideas, and that's when I discovered there was a Henry George School of Social Science, and my relationship with the school began at that point. So I, I really studied Henry George's works to see of what value they could be in helping me with my own commitment to revitalizing distressed communities and understanding land markets was extremely important, and it was something that very few of my colleagues, economists and otherwise, knew about. Hardly anyone uh, in in my professional circle uh, paid any attention to the dynamics of land markets, and particularly how taxation would affect the operation of land markets. So Henry George's analysis uh, of of land markets and how tax policy affects land markets, hit me like a lightning bolt. Up to that point, I was pretty much uh, devoted to Milton Friedman's monetarist ideas.
1: How could you have interacted with your peers at that time? I mean, Henry George was very big, seven years before you discovered him, and it had a tremendous impact at least on the psychology of many Americans. But then he fell into disuse, and we could argue some of the reasons why that's so but as a practical matter, how were you able to use the Henry George principles in your own work and, and, and career?
2: Well, uh, initially what, what it basically taught me was in working with community groups that were trying to acquire land for uh, you know, to develop affordable housing and other kinds of community assets, I just communicated to them that, that the key element that was operating in, our, in those communities was that the tax policy was encouraging land speculators? It was. It was making it very easy for speculators to acquire and hold land, and wait for uh, public-private partnerships such as we were working on to come along with the funds to to pay them their their profit for speculating land. And it was. And later in my career at Fannie Mae, the same kind of of analysis worked. Every every community we worked in we would go in early with, with pri- private money, public money, foundation money, uh, you know, low, low interest uh, bank grant uh, loans, etc. And as soon as we got started and got very far accomplished, the land speculators would show up and start uh, taking auctions on vacant property. And where in the start of a project, we might be facing a, uh, uh, let's say, an acquisition cost for every parcel of land of five hundred dollars or thousand dollars by the time we're halfway through the project and the community is starting to turn around all of a sudden uh, property owners are asking for you know 20000 dollars for the same vacant parcel of land or a shell and when you you know we have to come up with that kind of money to pay off the land speculators it's very difficult to build you know affordable housing units without even additional subsidy money
1: well, it became the American way to do exactly that. It it, it, uh, it culminated well, I, in 2008. I, you know, That's
2: a, I agree. Land speculations in our DNA. It goes back to the founding fathers, and you know George Washington made a great deal of his his uh, you know profits by being a land speculator. He was a he was one of the largest landowners in the, in the United States by the time he died. So, you know, we're it's in our DNA. People have come here for. For centuries, in search of cheap land and an opportunity to invest in land and make make a, a huge profit, but that doesn't mean it's it's really in the best interest of the community, and that's the hardest thing to convey to people to understand that that uh, the profit from land ownership is not a profit from uh, constructive economic activity. It's you know as the term is used, rent seeking. Uh, but economists, economics have have sort of Taking the term rent-seeking to apply it to any kind of uh, of income flow that's unearned or that's above average, so it's a very challenging educational issue for uh, professionals involved in real estate development and community development. And I've I've done my best over you know 30 some years to try to at least get uh, some of my former colleagues to pay attention to land markets and to tax policy.
1: Well, of course, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania has an active two-rate movement. Why don't you explain?
2: In Philadelphia, there have been a number of uh, high-ranking public officials. Going back to uh, a woman named Betsy Reveal, who was a former Harvard professor who, who became a member of the—who became Finnet, uh controller uh, of Philadelphia under Mayor Wilson Good. And she was uh, very pro-land value taxation, uh, but she could never get any action on it. And more recently, it's been Jonathan Seidel, the controller of the city of Philadelphia, who invited one of our colleagues, Bruno Moser, to come in uh, as an economist to help him develop the comprehensive reform of the way the city raised its revenue. And land value taxation was built in as one of the components of that plan, which, unfortunately sat on the shelf. They spent a lot of money, a lot of time and effort, and uh, once the plan was finished, it could never uh, find enough support in city council to move it to committee for consideration. So it's sitting there on the shelf. It's a, it was really a good, comprehensive plan, and it's been totally ignored by the politicians.
1: Why, in your opinion?
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know the game of politics. It's who pays. And so campaign contributions come in, and attorneys represent the big landed interests in Philadelphia, and they pretty much made sure that, that any kind of serious threat to uh, the land game uh, would be opposed. Even, even the city of Philadelphia, in its efforts to reassess property at current market value, has created such a controversy that even though the reassessments were completed, they would never have been implemented, because it's... It's been, uh, you know, it's been one of those things where some people are all of a sudden reassessed five or six times the value because their assessed value was so low for so long, and they're in gentrifying neighborhoods. So it's a, it's a, it's a serious political game in the cities, and how to
1: overcome that—that's,
2: I think, one of our challenges.
1: What, what was your experience with Fannie Mae, where, essentially, you were dealing with mortgages on a mass level? I mean. Yeah. Fannie Mae would have been a great place to even get a hearing and traction on on that kind of tax.
2: I became known as the Henry George guy at Fannie Mae. Uh,
1: my my role
2: initially when I first joined the company, I managed a team of review credit underwriters. We were the people who looked at the quality of loans that we were uh, purchasing or securitizing and tried to make sure that our lenders were following our guidelines. and that was a real important you know, uh, responsibility that we had to protect our investors and protect the quality of the, the book of business we did. Uh, it got really sad in the 2000s when the subprime mortgage yeah, market- Yeah, you
1: guys, you guys uh, basically were a big enabler of the speculation at the end. Uh, I disagree. Okay.
2: You weren't an enabler to, except for in one way. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac every year looked at the median price of property, of residential property, and increased the maximum loan amount based on the movement of property prices. So, in that respect, we did enable the market. We enabled the the land market and the speculation in the land market by raising our maximum loan You confirmed it. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it was done for a clear reason, and that was to maintain transaction volume and market share. If we didn't increase our loan limits, then all of those loans would have gone into the jumbo market and would have been, uh, been securitized in the private label mortgage backed security business that the banks did. Because we limit we increased our loan limits, the banks teamed up with the mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers to, to, to create the subprime private label business. And that took away an enormous market share from us and from Freddie Mac in a very short period of time, beginning about 2004. And in my view, it's the, it's the private securities-backed security business that caused the major crash. It, it was just business that was done imprudently at best and with a good deal of fraud and criminal uh, activity at worst. But anyway, getting back to your initial question, you know, at Fannie Mae, after after I left that group, I went to work in our housing community development group uh, based in Philadelphia. And there I took on the role of business manager and market analyst. And one of my responsibilities was to look at the needs, the housing needs of different geographic sectors and come up with program ideas that would help meet those needs. So we were dealing with, a lot of, uh, of land speculation in those communities where our funds were going to be targeted, and in New York City, this this was a big problem as well. For most of the 80s, the city had what they called the N-ream, uh inventory of vacant property in the Bronx, a little bit in Brooklyn, uh, a good deal of property in uh, uh, in the uh, African American section of, of Manhattan,
1: and yeah, but some uh, it's almost 6% of uh, New York City is vacant land right now.
2: Right, but the city, the city had its inventory. And so as long as the city's inventory was brought to the table, we were able to uh, bring funds in to develop affordable housing in Harlem and other places. We did a lot of renovation of brownstones with the idea that bringing in middle-income households to buy these brownstones and then if it was a two or three or four unit property, the rental units would be set aside for lower income households. And that that really worked well and we did quite a few uh, we got quite a few properties renovated and and reoccupied. But eventually the city ran out of city owned land. Once that happened, now we were having to deal with private landowners. So instead of the land component being 0, the land component now for every Affordable housing unit that we were trying to build might have been a hundred thousand dollars. So just look at the numbers and think how much more difficult that would be. Well, New York was one of the worst cases, but other cities had that same experience to a greater or lesser degree. San Francisco—it was almost impossible to build any affordable housing, and and so you know my my role was try to bring. Uh, to bring the information, the analysis of how land markets function to our our team of people, and uh, and one of the things I tried to do with our with our research group was to get uh, an amendment to a real piece of uh, critical piece of legislation, the uh, the um, Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, called HMDA. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But what that requires is for every lender that originates a mortgage loan to submit key information to uh, the government agency that that collects this data. And then the data is analyzed and reports are submitted periodically to show how well uh, the lending institutions are serving their communities. Well, in that data, the one requirement was to submit appraised value. But that was a one number, and I, what I tried to get our people to lobby for was to get the separate land value uh, information included in the HMDA data. And they were starting to see that that was beneficial, but, it, but, but just about the time that our government relations people got interested in it, uh, the, the financial problems at Fannie Mae just brought a halt to everything. We, you know, all any initiative that we had that was working on, a, on solving some of these problems was was really dropped in order to resolve the regulatory problems with our accounting. A couple other things that we were doing too that are important. Uh, and I should mention this our chief economist at the time, his name was David Burson. David Burson, believe it or not, was the great grandson of Henry George. Really? Yes, and David and I got to be pretty good—I uh, won't say friends, but—but but working colleagues. You know, a lot of the work that I was doing overlapped with what our economics department was doing. And I had proposed to David that we organize a conference with bank economists on land markets, on the operation of land markets, and that would have created a really good venue and opportunity to reach the uh, economists in the industry with, you know, the benefits of, of supporting land value taxation.
1: Well, if you had your opportunity, how would you in, institute a, a Georgia's land tax? Let's say nationwide. Do you think it's feasible? Do you think it would raise enough money? Do you think you could run government on it?
2: Oh, I do. I mean, the estimates by some of the economists who studied this issue are, you know that maybe uh, rent is a third of gdp and certainly the work of mason gaffney is the most comprehensive on this issue uh, <clears throat> you know even if gdp is not a really good measurement of economic growth uh, it's it's the data it's the statistic that we have that that is most utilized but i but i do think that rent is sizable how to implement it nationwide well you know let's Let's start with uh, the public domain and access that, that mining companies and timber companies have to the public domain. Those, uh, that access ought to be awarded, awarded on a competitive bidding basis for leaseholds. And, you know, we basically give away the, the uh, rights to, to exploit the public domain. Uh, grazing uh, fees on public lands. You know, all of that is heavily subsidized and shouldn't be. How much revenue it raised, I don't know, but I, I suspect it's you know some great multiple
1: of what's raised at the moment. Well, you put you put oil lands and shale lands in on that, and now you're starting to add up into something sizable. And you take the the radio and TV spectrum, and, yeah. uh, and you start adding that up. Now you've got a significant revenue base, and it's. Uh, it's, it's not going to discourage productivity of labor and, and capital. So these are all positive things that the Georges say w- would happen.
2: Yeah, I think the economic theory is clear that it supports it. You know, uh, you know there are plenty of the, the bibliography of, of the literature. There's so much in support of the Georges analysis. It's unbelievable. And yet young economists, by and large, uh, are not introduced to it at all.
1: Well, if we go back just to... Uh, go back to the time of Henry George in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, he made such a stir in this country and made such a, an impact. And essentially, he sold five million copies of the, of, the, of his work, *Progress and Poverty*, in a population that was four times smaller than it is today. So it was such an enormous impact. People today don't don't realize it. People like Winston Churchill and George Bernard Shaw, Leo Tolstoy, people all around the world were influenced by uh, his work and the, and, and the logic of it. But it turns out that the economics departments in America, being impacted by, by what he said, essentially had to write him out of the discourse. And, uh, and that's a well-documented uh, phenomenon. So by the 1913, 1913, 1920, uh, he was suppressed and not talked about. If you look back in the late 1800s,
2: what was the role of the economists? Economists first came into uh, use in Germany and elsewhere in Europe because empire-building countries like Germany under Bismarck needed to know a lot of information about where resources were. You know, they needed to know information about the skills of their labor force, where natural resources were in their own countries, and if they needed resources to build their military industrial uh, enterprise, where they could be found. And if they couldn't be found peacefully, well, they were willing to send armies in to secure them. So economists uh, were trained to gather information and report on it, gather data, report on it, but not make value judgments about it, and so that, to me, was the start of the breakdown of the discipline of political economy into its subdisciplines. And economists were were trained to to do this and use statistical analysis. They introduced, um, you know, mathematics to to the study because it was part of the statistical analysis that they needed, and. One generation that comes back from Europe with PhDs starts to displace the political economists in the various universities. I'll give you one example. In the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Scott Nearing was a professor there at Wharton. He was one of the most popular professors at the university. His classes had 300, 400 students. He was dismissed by the, by the university for two reasons. One, he supported laws against child labor, and the trustees in the university were, were you know, the uh, substantive members of the community who owned businesses that employed child labor. And the second reason he was dismissed was because he supported Henry George.
1: Well, he wrote he, he so wrote to write fifteen or twenty books. Oh yeah, uh, so he oh, yeah.
2: Became... but he but he no longer he never taught economics again, and and so he's just one example of of how the old school political economists who believed in the three factor model land labor and capital were slowly replaced and you know think about it this way uh... you you have you have these european trained economists with with a Ph.D coming in they train the next generation of students to become economists and their students are not going to challenge their mentors or at least not very many of them and so you get Two or three generations of students becoming professors to teach the next generation of students.
1: And basically applied and, mathematicians on problems that aren't fundamental to uh, to social justice, let's say, or who gets the money.
2: They're not concerned about the distribution of income and wealth from a value standpoint, only from a statistical standpoint. And it took courageous people like Harry Gunnison Brown uh, and later, you know, Mason Gaffney and, and some other other economists that we know to really challenge that that uh, value-free analysis and not make moral judgments about how economies and societies are organized and designed. So, I mean, that's a that's a big part of our challenge. And, it, and personally, that that has been one of the most difficult parts of, of the work that I've tried to do to sell Henry George's perspective because. When people spend their whole career becoming experts, it's hard to convince an expert that they've somehow misanalyzed fundamental, uh, you know, systemic
1: uh, you know, issues. Ed, you've taught probably in your lifetime maybe five thousand students, would you say? Uh, may- maybe, yeah. Principles of Henry George. Would well, you figure it that? Uh... Temple, at Asher, and so forth. What was your general consensus of the effect of your teaching in terms of getting Henry George into the consciousness of your students?
2: Well, uh, I, I believe that that most people uh, began to understand the importance of, of tax policy, and the importance of land markets in the economy. But whether or not many of them uh, accepted the importance of those issues in our society is another big issue. Because not very many people uh, come through an educational program and come out of it as activists. What The few people that I can really point to who Really come to embrace what I, what I was teaching. Were activists in the beginning. They came in as activists looking for answers, and they found the answers that that we provided or that I provided in my teaching as the best answers that anyone had come up with and presented to them. And so then they took those those you know that activism out into their own you know life and did whatever whatever they were going to do with it.
1: Well, if we looked around the world and the country for evidence that the program is on the right track, if you, if you look at many of the states and, and, and looked at their individual revenue-raising activities, generally they'll, they'll fall into two categories. They'll either tax real estate, both land and, and structure, or, and they'll tax sales. You'll have two basic uh, ways of raising money at the state level, not at the federal level. And it's pretty clear if you look at the states that raise most of their money by a property tax as opposed to an income tax or a sales tax, that the GNP of those states generally are much better than the states that don't do that.
2: Mason Gaffney has has documented that, that the property taxes is, is, of all the taxes, the best tax, even though... The property tax on property improvements is, is uh, you know, counterproductive. So yes, I, I agree with you that that states that have a very high property tax tend to have a more robust economy. But you know, that's not universally true. There are states that have a high property tax, but for other reasons, their economies
1: have faltered. There's also, if we look around the world, we can t- take a look at countries like. Taiwan, uh, we can take a look at Singapore, we can take a look at Hong Kong, that are primarily land taxing entities. And in every case, they're very, very dynamic. Yeah.
2: Milton Friedman would say that the other part of it is that they're very much free trade uh, oriented. So it's the combination, and Henry George acknowledges this in the last chapter of his book, Protection of Free Trade, that it's the combination. Of free trade uh, and and the taxation of land values that will give the economy the most robust growth. It will create what what I usually refer to as a full employment society, something close to a situation where there are always more people or more jobs looking for people than people looking for jobs. So you know we know that we know that is the case that whenever there's a greater demand for workers in a particular. Uh, sector of the economy, that wages and benefits will go up. And then the society responds. We create we create all these training programs to get more people into that sector of the economy. Then there's a balancing out and wages and compensation levels level out or even drop when there's a, a rising uh, ca- uh, quantity of labor provided. And so what we do in to mitigate the problems of the economy now doesn't work in the long run for people. We need to have a, a situation where we have a sustained increase in demand for labor. And and we know that the tax tax policy and removing the, the tax burden on earned income flows, on capital goods, and on commerce is a way to get there. As long as we you know also pick up the rent from land and all the various uh, sources that you've mentioned. Well,
1: okay, one other comment. Uh... I'd like you to, to discuss. You're familiar with uh, Josh Vincent's work on uh, two-rate uh, yeah. taxing, and especially yeah. in, the, in the Pennsylvania area, uh, he's been most successful. Why don't you explain to the audience uh, the, this partial approach to a full Henry George tax, and, and your opinion on what you've seen and how it's worked?
2: Well, the work that Josh Vincent does is really important uh, to provide best practice examples for communities. And the longer that the two-rate property tax is put into place and, and, and the, the approach that Josh takes, you know, the ideal would be to move to a tax base that is land-only, to eliminate exempt property improvements from the tax base altogether. Very few communities are willing to do that uh, at all, and if, if they are willing to consider it, they're willing to consider it over a prolonged period of time. Let's, let's move in the direction of lowering the tax rate on buildings, increasing the rate on land, and then see what happens. If good things happen, we'll do more of it. The problem with our with the georgist movement advocacy of the two-way property tax is it's always subject to challenge. And it's always subject to being uh, turned back, and that that happened in the city of Pittsburgh for the reason that that property hadn't been reassessed in the county for three or four decades, and when they and the county finally did a reassessment, it did a terrible job, and the public outroar was such uh, that that the city council in Pittsburgh, you know blamed the two-rate property tax, and so they went back to a single rate on both land and improvements, and the consequences to the city of Pittsburgh
1: that Josh warned them of happened. Thanks again, Ed. It was a great conversation, and we'll do it again.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.